Tactical Breakdown Podcast, Episode 25, Part 3. This is the final of three segments from our Instructor's Roundtable on Use of Force and Defensive Tactics. To check out all of these episodes, visit thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Right, this is Tactical Breakdown, the podcast for instructors and trainers. If you're in law enforcement, if you're in emergency response to the military, this is the place to be. We're finishing up our three-part episode from our instructors roundtable on use of force and defensive tactics with experts John Bostain, Scott Savage, Tony Blauer, and Chris Butler. If you haven't already, make sure to check out the first two episodes, or you can go to thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT to view the video in full off of YouTube. Again, a huge thank you to Blauer Tactical Systems for sponsoring IRT Round 1 on Use of Force and Defensive Tactics. Check them out at BlauerSpear.com and use the code TACTICAL if you're going to be purchasing anything. They're going to help you out with some savings. Coming up next on the podcast is going to be our one-on-one interview with guest of this roundtable and friend of the show, Scott Savage. So make sure to check that out. We're going to be talking about critical incident response. So without any further ado, let's jump back in to this final part of our roundtable. Here we go. I, I think, and uh, Chris, I spoke with you yesterday too. I can't remember the context of though. I remember you said you had a video that you wanted to share and speak to. Yeah, well, I didn't have a video. I had I had some slides that I wanted to show just to highlight a couple of points that, that we've made along and, and a really important point that was made by Tony earlier about repetitions and sure. what those can result in. Okay. If you can screen share with me, I'll throw it up there. So, Okay. Is that showing? Yeah, you betcha. You're good. Okay. All right. Okay. Because, um, you know, I, I just want to highlight this point. It was one of the ones that we, that we spoke about earlier and uh, so just to put some actual numbers and science to this to reinforce what we're talking about, we're looking at offender hit rates. Um, you know, depending on what study that you're looking at, the most recent one that we have, probably the most accurate study on offender hit rates comes from the FBI Violent Encounters Study in 2006. And we're looking at the average accuracy of offenders is around 70%. In other words, when they're attempting to kill or, or killing law enforcement officers, they're hitting them about 70% of the time. And of course, we all know that these engagements are occurring at extremely close uh, ranges, typically within seven to nine feet is the bulk of them. So they're extremely close, they're extremely fast, and the offenders are hitting officers the bulk of the time. And now the the interesting thing about this is if you look at actually where offenders are hitting cops, and so, for example, you, you the, the Leoka study, the 2018 Leoka uh, publication that came out, what you find in that one, and this is the highest percentage that we've seen in all of the, the studies, is officers that have been killed in the line of duty are being hit in the head and the neck over 70% of the time. So what what we, when we put all this together, what this should inform us is that uh, these rapid spontaneous attacks at close range are occurring extremely quickly, usually within about a quarter second or less from start to finish. So that's about 250 milliseconds from the time an offender begins to present a weapon to the time the round is fired, about a quarter second, 70% of the time they're hitting cops, 70% of the time that cops are killed, those shots are hitting officers in the head and in the neck. And so what I want to ask is the question is, is why? Why are officers so frequently being hit and in the head and the neck? And one of the primary reasons for that is because of this right here. And what we what we have is repetitions. So 
hundreds, if not thousands of repetitions where officers are allowed to draw their firearm in response. The stimulus is a threat. So they're drawing their firearm and we're not engaging the officer in any type of movement. The head and the neck are remaining exactly where they were. And what, what this is telling us is that practice of repetition in and of itself can either be a good thing or it can be a fatal thing. And this is, I, I call these types of ranges training scar factories because all we're doing is conditioning an officer for exactly the response that we don't want them to have operationally. And so this is an example here of what that results in where you've got an officer on a traffic stop. This is a, this is research that was done by the Force Science Institute in Oregon, um, peer-reviewed study, and we had officers approach the driver's position. <coughs> the, uh, the, dry, the role player in the car would suddenly present a firearm and begin firing at the officer. Now, when you look at this image, um, I, I'm sure to our viewers who are watching this, there's a whole bunch of things that stand out tactically as an issue. And, but rather than being critical of this officer, I think what we need to look at is what's going on in the officer's brain, what type of decision-making and John earlier mentioned system system one, which if you've read thinking fast and slow by Kahneman, that's what he refers to there. System one, which is automatic reflexive stimulus response, decision-making the officer's brain perceives the threat of a gun the decision-making is how am I trained to respond to that? And the answer is I draw my firearm, even though contextually in this situation, that is the, one of the most least desirable responses. Now in this study, so they had 93 police officers from 19 different agencies participate in the study. 90 out of 93 police officers did exactly what this officer is doing. And so the, the important thing here for trainers looking at this is to remember, uh, look, officers don't rise to the occasion in the middle of a crisis. They fall to the level of their training. And how we have trained them combatively is exactly how they're going to respond in this type of situation. Now, a second thing that creates this type of problem is when we separate firearms training from physical combatives training in the academy and in, in service because combat with a violent subject whether they're armed or not armed often will require the officer to be able to integrate exceptional physical control skills with firearms related skills that that's combat on the street for a police officer so i just uh, i thought of that earlier when we were talking about repetitions and Tony made the great point about uh, repetitions isn't nearly as important as what is it that you're actually practicing and, and what are the repetitions going to result in? That's a great, That's great. That gets back to like realism, right? <clears throat> Someone's shooting at you and you're thinking you can somehow move backwards, draw your firearm, shoot accurately and all that type of stuff. You know, it's just not a realistic thing and that's not, you know, what your body was designed to do, and that's mm -hmm. not going to save your life. And, I don't, it's a sad you, photo. You know, Scott, it's interesting. I don't think anyone thinks that. Mm -hmm. Like, I know what you, I know you meant that semantically. I don't think people are like going, yeah, no, I'm faster than a speeding bullet, and I'm going to do this. Um, it's, it's to Chris's point, it's, it's, they're trained to do that. And there's an assumption when you go there, and some expert who's got instructor, master guru ninja embroidered on his, polo shirt that he's going to tell you the truth. Why would he tell me something that isn't the truth, you right. know? And, and consistently you see that even, you know, with the Instagram wizards online and, you know, everyone's still standing there going, you know, and then, you know, it's, you know, don't get me started. It's, 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 if you're scared shitless, unconscious or dead, you're not getting to your next move. So before, before anyone can, you know, I used to ask a question in class. I go like, "Is is uh, shooting a uh, complex motor skill, a fine motor skill, or a gross motor skill?" And the the class would have varied answers. I go, "Well, 
drawing your weapons, a complex motor skill, sight alignment, trigger squeeze, breathing, fine motor skills. Balancing your body is a gross motor skill. The, the ability to draw your weapon and engage a threat is a, you know, fine, complex and gross motor skill. Add to it the emotional, psychological uh, impact of, I don't know if any of you read my, my article, uh, Presumed Compliance, Theory of Presumed Compliance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 1993, Street Survival Caliber Press used to have that in their manual. I don't know if they still do. But, um, uh, you know, in the opening paragraph, I said, you know, how you feel affects how you think. How you think affects how you feel. Both influence how you move. And, and, and what I still see decades later is people are focusing on how should we move as opposed to how should we think and how we think is going to change how we feel. Everyone who lives to tell the tale that I've interviewed said I had a bad feeling just before the attack, but they're not, they're not using that. They're not using that intuition and that instinct to, to, to calibrate their next decision. Um, you get a bad feeling while you're doing, you know, you just, you, you, you didn't get into it, but like, like that would have changed everything if he had done a passenger side approach, right? That would have been way more telegraphic. The guy would have to sweep the gun across his car as opposed to jack of the box pop out there. But there's so much, there's so much good stuff here, but we got to look at like the bad guy controls the fight. The bad guy decides the location, the level of violence and the duration of the fight. And if we started looking at defensive tactics training, specifically from how does the bad guy attack the good guy and then reverse engineer our training from there, we wouldn't be building training based on, you know, lowest common denominators. It would be, well, this is our threat. If, if mermaids started attacking us, we would have to shift. If unicorns started attacking us, we'd have to pivot. But you see all over the world, all over the world, regardless of culture, regardless of location, regardless of language, inside the reactionary gap, there's three common attacks. There's a John Wayne punch, whether you call it a king hit from Australia or a sucker punch in America. Uh, if you're in Scotland, you might add a headbutt in there. But you see violent shove to an attack, uh, to, to a takedown. And, and all of these things, all of these movements trigger micro flinches. And, and uh, uh, the, 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 biggest, the biggest thing that, that we can do as, as people trying to influence change and enhance survivability is get all of you out there listening to this. If you're in training, if you're in law enforcement, you've got to study the pre-contact moment prior to an ambush. Everything else will take care of itself. All your training will take care of yourself. It's the sudden ambush that, that triggers all of the, uh, I like to call it emotional use of force. Use of force should just be use of force. And if once it's emotional, that, that's when things can, can, can unravel for you. So you know, this, this goes back on academies and training uh, institutions. Uh, really look at, at reworking, re-engineering how we do scenario-based training and looking at it from the perspective of the attacker. John, you remember back in Fletzy when I showed you guys how to watch a dashboard video. Mm-hmm. I play a video and I go, like, you know, a classic video. I go, who did I stop it? I'd play it once. I go, who did everyone watch? And everyone reflexively watched the cop. So if I if I put on uh you know Super Bowls this weekend, if I put on you know your team, whether they're winning or losing, you're watching your team. We do that. That's our unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And I go like like, why are you watching the cop? This cop is getting shot or beaten. Why aren't you watching the bad guy? Right. And then I would ask people, watch it as backup. And what would you do? Gun. And you'd step backwards. And I, then I'd say, and this is a big shift. I'd say, now watch it as if you were a bodyguard. And your contact cop was your principal. Did that challenge where your head would go? Right. Because a bodyguard standing near a cop, when he sees that guy reaching for his knife or a gun or an improvised weapon, would knock the principal out of the way and gauge the threat. Right. Depending on if he was a one man team, he would do one of those two things or both of them at the same time. But cop step backwards. Hmm. Right. So I go like, where's the conflict? And where's the capability gap in your training? But all of these questions, all these Socratic questions were based on what's the bad guy doing? Because the bad guy controls the fight.
when you look at the speed of the assaults to <clears throat> what Tony's saying here, you know, we really have to understand this because whether it's an offender at those extremely close range distances, when they initiate that assault, whether they're coming with a firearm, with an edged weapon, with an improvised weapon, whatever it might be, um, that assault is going to initiate and end in under a quarter of a second. Um, so from about 150 milliseconds to 250 milliseconds, it's going to begin and end. And now if you think as the officer who's watching this that, oh, if he's coming with a gun, I'm going to do this response. If he's coming with an edge weapon, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to use this blocking technique if it's a fisted attack. Uh, that's completely outside the range of human factors. You're not even going to be able to perceive anything but a blur coming towards you. Your peripheral vision will pick up a rapid blur, maybe some initial tracking. Um, but if you're not trained with that, if your initial training response to that sudden presentation of a threat at close range is not to begin to move your head and neck offline as part of that initial response to that, uh, this is why we get officers 70% of the time that are getting shot in the head and the neck is because as that threat is evolving within that very short period of time, we're not maximizing our our uh, ambient vision, our peripheral vision, and those micro flinches that Tony uh, spoke about to train ourselves that that initial response is to get head and neck. Don't leave your head and neck where it was when that threat first began to evolve. We've got to start getting inside that response loop a lot faster. And there's an in interesting study that was done. It's called the effects of reflex-based self-defense training on police performance in a high-pressure situation. And they looked, they provided flinch-based responses to police officers. And then after the, the train group was given uh, that specific type of training, they put them through six different types of attack scenarios. The officers never knew what was going to happen. It all occurred at very close range. There was empty hand attack, fisted attack, edge weapons attack, firearms attack, total of six different types of attack. And what they found is the officers who were trained and conditioned in the flinch response, their initial reaction was up to 600% faster to be to begin in a, a response to that threat, uh, their total response time was faster, and their the their tactics that they used to control that threat were exceptionally more proficient than the officers who just had standard firearms and arrest control tactics training. Because the standard training teaches us to stand in the same place as that threat's evolving. That's great. Was that the study from the Netherlands? Yes. Yeah, 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 those are those are uh, two of my students. They did a great job on that. Um, what, what's what's interesting, and you know, and you know, a lot of times we get all uh, obsequious and pedantic, and I use those big words on purpose because most people don't know how to spell them or know what they mean. Uh, and you know, we get is all it, the, is that like antecedent or is it different? A lot harder than antecedent. Man. antecedent, you'll see it's way worse. But the uh, but the, joking, like you, you know. We can get all like lost in the numbers and all of that, but I tell people it's really simple. Action's faster than reaction. We all know that. In an ambush, the bad guy's always action. So having a system that says when he punches me, I'll do wax on, wax off, violates math and physics. Mm -hmm. So you're 100% right, Chris. All you're going to see is a blur. If you ask any any uh, EMS, firefighter, even, even a police officer, someone goes through a windshield uh, because they're not wearing their seatbelt, there's always trauma on the hands. There's almost always a knife attacks, frontal attack, trauma on the hands. The start of flinch is faster than uh, any type of, of uh, uh, um, uh, what sort of neuromuscular communication, the brain going, well, if he does this, I'll do that. And, and so if you're serious, anyone listening to this serious about enhancing your safety, you've got to build this into it, but it's already there. It's organic. But it's what Chris talked about earlier, that the myelinization of doing it, you know, your 10,000 reps somewhere else can hijack what your body reflexively would do, what your human weapon system would do. And so you need to weaponize a startle flinch. Uh, that'll come out in instinctively. It'll be up there. When you flinch, the hands move, always move first. 
right? And then the head will move offline. And so, you know, would you rather be shot in the hand or the face? And, and uh, you know, get, get that moving, but learn to weaponize that. And it's, it's so simple. Like literally, um, we had a, it was a nine-year study. And if anyone emails me, and maybe we'll put the link uh, to it here, but I only want to send it out to government addresses, Adam. Um, and that is uh, 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 a police agency in the UK did a nine-year study, completely independent, that resulted in, in a 41% reduction in head trauma inside the reactionary gap, a 29% reduction in use of force complaints against the agency, and millions of dollars cumulatively over these years of, of health and medical legal savings as a result. I mean, if you change almost 50% of the impact in somebody's head, imagine if you were going to box tonight, eight rounds, 10 rounds, four rounds, and I said, hey, you want to you know, take this pill and you won't get hit in the head 41% of the time, you're going to win the fight, right? If it's an even, if it's an even fight. Um, and, and, and so these guys presented this research with, to me and it's amazing. And I asked them, I was like blown away by this. I just got it uh, uh, this past January. And, um, and I was like, holy shit, how much training did it require to get 41% reduction in head trauma? And, and the, the officer that initiated the training said, uh, he said it was a, a one-day officer survival. And I said, well, one day, that makes no sense. Like one day, how often? Every month? He goes, no, one day, a year. And that included baton work and cuffing and stuff like that. And all they did, to Chris's point, is they, they introduced a 90-minute block on, on the neuroscience of the physiology behind the startle flinch. And then we, we they did these classic Pavlovian conditioning on start a flinch move outside 90 finger splay and how to create this airbag effect that if someone goes to headbutt you, bite you, hit you, baseball bat, bring a weapon, and you're here and you can go slam and you can just push them off offline, your brain can catch up and you go, this is what they told us would happen in training. And it's happening in the street now. And now I'm going to transition force must parallel danger. And you're going to make those, those, those transitions. Anyways, it's very, I had no idea that you're going to present that, Chris. I want to talk to you offline after, because that's very uh, interesting and exciting, especially the, the speed factors there. There's nothing faster than your startle flinch because it bypasses. And, and every officer needs to understand that. I think Adam, another takeaway, just maybe, taking a step back from the fight itself and looking more strategically, especially for the young kids that, that might be watching that are going to go out and become uh, patrol officers is get away from this mindset of they are the world's problem solvers. They got to rush into every, you know, crisis that develops that there's no time to wait for backup. There's no time, you know, just rush, rush, rush in. Um, a lot of the videos we see online are typically, you know, mono a mono, officer against suspect and there's a lot of rushing, rushing, rushing. Right. And, you know, the classes that, that uh, we present, we kind of give some decision-making models and a lot of this, you know, when we're going to rush in is based on very few isolated incidents where there's just no time to wait. Classic examples, the active shooter and active killing, right? Uh, statistically it's been shown if we get in there quickly, we can neutralize the threat short of that. And a few other, um, you know, major emergencies, real in extremist kinds of things. Oftentimes there's no compelling need to rush. Uh, an example of a time that it's not good to rush in is a bar fight. You know, two drunk guys uh, in a fight is not a great time to go jump in the middle of it. And when we train young cops on this, we use the analogy or the example, if you're off duty with your friends and two people who you don't know, who you probably don't like, start fighting, would you jump in the middle of it? Well, of course not. That wouldn't make any sense. Why not? Well, because we'd probably get punched. Yeah. You know what happens when you're a cop? You're by yourself and you jump in the middle of two guys you don't like, you don't know, and they start fighting. You get punched. You know, you pull, bad things happen. So just taking a step back from the fight, you know, the, the easiest fight to win is the one you were never in. I'm sure there's a lot of other great quotes like that. And it's getting away from the mindset uh, that, unfortunately, that the law enforcement profession trains cops in the academy to think you can solve any problem. You know, they call 911, we come, we rush in and save the day. And I'm here to tell you there's a lot of problems we can't solve, you know. Uh, and, and thinking that you're Superman because in the academy you successfully passed the sustained resistance scenario 
and we patted you on the back and said, hey, you're good to go. And you walk out feeling like Superman or Superwoman is an illusion. That's not real, you know. And so uh, for the young folks that are watching this, especially some good takeaways in addition to everything else we've been telling you is to really have some humility and see, you know, I'm, I'm just a cop. I didn't when you graduate the academy, you're not bulletproof. You're not a ninja. You know, you're, you're nothing special. You've got a small amount of training to be a safe beginner. And even the folks of, like us who have done it for a long time, we realize every year that goes by how much we, A, don't know, and how, B, how dangerous this is, right? Uh, wait for your cover. Don't cancel your cover. Watch out for the signs that, that we're talking about. And, and uh, some of those things will help you avoid those unnecessary fights. And if we have to fight, maybe we can get 10 of our friends, you know, to help us in this fight. That'll make it a lot, lot easier to be successful. Thanks, Patty. Uh, just along your point, I, I could not agree with you anymore. I mean, that's exactly the type of stuff we're talking about. And we take a page from uh, John Wooden's book. And uh, he, John Wooden, uh, UCLA basketball coach for all those years, tremendous coach. And he used to tell his players, be quick, but don't hurry. That was his thing. Be quick, but don't hurry. So when it, we're in class, I ask people, hey, well, what does hurry look like? Well, it's sloppy, it's chaotic, it's reckless. And some people say, well, it's fast. Well, yeah, but in a completely chaotic way. Then I say, okay, well, describe quick to me. It's smooth, precise, purposeful, controlled, but it's still fast. And so that's the kind of exact same thing, right? We're talking, I, one of the things that drives me is I tell people uh, all over the country, I say the same thing. I like, if I was king of law enforcement for a day, uh, I, I, that, that, uh, quote, be quick, but don't hurry would be on every roll call room and every MDT in the, in the country. But then I tell people if I were running an academy or in-service training, I'd have a whole scenario multiple times throughout the academy where the whole purpose of the scenario was to hold cover. And it's something for science that I, I have to admit, I, um, I've been thinking about this for a while, but, uh, I attended Chris Butler's for science class in San, San Francisco um, right before Christmas, and it really opened my eyes up to something. Um, when we talk about time, there's a finite amount of time in every situation, uh, and there's two types. There's what we call discretionary time and non-discretionary time. Non-discretionary time is that time, for, you know, the guy opens the door on a traffic stop, rolls out, and he starts shooting, and you literally don't, you're 100% operating in system one mindset. You don't have a lot of time. But then there's a lot of circumstances that you just described, Scott, where we can have time, there's even ways to create additional some time through, uh, you know, movement and barriers and things like that. And what happens is law enforcement officers, in many cases, they have discretionary time through positioning and superior numbers and things like that. And then they voluntarily give it away um, by breaking cover and rushing in, like you just said. So I, I thought that was a really powerful thing that Chris taught me just uh, literally just about a month ago. Um, and I think it's really important for us to understand that concept of discretionary time, non-discretionary time. I want to create as much discretionary time as I possibly can. And the last thing I want to do is give it away to the suspect because what we've done is now forced ourselves into a non-discretionary time position where we've given all that over to the suspect. So uh, there you go, Chris, something actually struck with me uh, last month. Well, that's great to hear. And, and, and just one other thing that um, to add on to what John said is, I, th I think what officers struggle with, you know, I know I sure did for a long time as a young cop on the street, and that is uh, tactical adaptability, tactical disengagement. So it's one thing, and, and it, we, John is right when he says, you know, we need to take a tactical pause. We need to think about at the very beginning. What's my lawful authority here? What what am I grounded on? What's my goal? What's my objective? What resources do I need? Uh, what type of a subject am I dealing with? Do I have isolation, containment, all that type of stuff? But I think that along with that is we need to train officers and put them in scenarios. If we don't do scenarios to allow them to develop the skill, we're not doing them a service but put them in scenarios where the expectation is things are going to escalate to the point where they need to recognize that the best thing from a tactical situation would be to reposition, to now go from 
because they find themselves in an evolving non-discretionary time event. Maybe they don't have backup. They don't have cover. Um, and so can they then tactically reposition? You know, it, it is okay in almost every situation to pause and walk away from an event in the short term in order to make it more tactically advantageous to come back uh, with the proper resources and everything you need to deal with it. Now, there's certainly cases where that's not possible, where you just have to, to um, continue to intervene and to close with the suspect. But I think tactical repositioning, disengage, disengagement, whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, cops love it when we put tactical in front of stuff. You make it black, give them Velcro and call it tactical, and then and it's cool all of a sudden. Yep. Amen. Yeah, and I think, there, you know, as you were speaking, Chris, there's a, a piece of California use of uh, force code, penal code 835A that says something about how officers need not retreat, you know, if under attack, they won't be deemed the primary aggressor. And they need not retreat. I guess that that's great, but there's, we need to train cops when there's good times to retreat. And I'm thinking back to, you know, being in the police Academy and I'm wondering if there was ever a time we were trained to, Hey, you should run that way. You know, you're, you're not going to win this fight. You should get out of here. Wait, go get more of your friends and come back. Instead it's just push, push, push. And that sustained resistance scenario, while it has a lot of great learning uh, to it about staying in the fight and persevering when you're uncomfortable, Sometimes, though, the message they're left with is, you know, keep keep staying on this X or whatever they, they call it, no matter what, when sometimes the best thing to do, like you pointed out, is to get out of there. This is not a winnable fight. Yeah, you know, the closest I came to losing my life in the line of duty was something that started as a nothing call. I was arresting a guy because he had possession of alcohol and he was on conditions not to have any alcohol. And I went to arrest him out in front of his house and he broke free from me. And uh, he ran through his front door into the darkness of his house. And I pursued him into his house by myself, no cover, no backup. He has superior tactical advantage now because it's his house. I don't know if there's weapons in there. And we got into a battle in his basement where he almost disarmed me. He had a lot of skill. Uh, fortunately, my backup got there um, in, in time to help. But I, I thought afterwards, I thought, what the hell am I doing? Why did I why did I press that situation? Well, and when I was honest with myself, it was because I was angry, I was pissed off, I had ego. How dare this guy contempt a cop? And I pursued him into a tactically horrendous situation. Um, and so I agree with you, Scott. Like but we have to design scenarios to help our officers A understand that and B, you know what, as supervisors in the agency, and John, you and Scott teach a lot of frontline supervisors, we have to have a culture that, you know what, it's acceptable to tactically reposition in order to make a situation safer and better for yourself and come back at it with the appropriate resources. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do a lot of really interesting stuff here, especially now getting into one of the main topics that I mean, a lot of people brought up, which was uh, dynamic and reality-based training. Um, and and how we how we do that effectively, um, and so we you guys have already spoken to it. Does anybody want to kind of give their thoughts on developing these scenario based training, but doing it correctly so that we're not uh, so that we're doing a service to the officer, not a disservice? Yeah, well, I, I can start on that if if you don't mind, I, and I'll just add a couple of quick points. I think. Any scenarios you design have to have clearly definable training objectives. Mm -hmm. So if I'm creating a scenario, what do I want? What am I going to measure? I have to measure something, officer performance. What are my expectations around decision-making tactics, all of that? So having clearly defined measurable objectives. Um, a second piece is to have well-trained role players. Yep. So role players who understand that the objective of this is that the officers are going to win this encounter. Now, that doesn't mean that we just simply um, make it e unrealistically easy for the officer, but the role play has to have clearly defined um, inputs and objectives as a role player to uh, keep the scenario going on track so it doesn't get uh, out of control. And then 
the, the third piece of that is the instructors themselves have to have a significant background in human factors, in scenario design. And um, somebody briefly mentioned before Ken Murray training at the speed of life, but um, I'll put in a plug for Ken here. Uh, if you've not taken a training at the speed of life um, scenario, reality-based training instructor course, Ken Murray is the standard. Uh, there may be other great programs out there, so I'm not saying that there isn't, uh, but I'm very familiar with Ken Murray's work and training at the speed of life. But there is a serious science and art to high fidelity training, because if you get it wrong, you can train officers to die in the line of duty. Yeah, and I'll just add a couple of, again, we ran lots of scenarios at Plessy, so we got, you know, very good at it. But I also know where some of the mistakes I've seen over the years when it comes to, you know, scenario-based um, training. One that I've seen a lot across the country is uh, people will take an incident and they'll say, well, it happened, so it will make good for a good scenario. So I always look back and I say, well, is, is this a type of incident that's only happened once in, in forever? Meaning this is exactly, they'll, they'll go over the exact same fact pattern and they'll create a scenario from an actual incident. Now, there's times when that's a great idea, but just because it happened once doesn't mean it should be the basis for a training scenario. Uh, and I've always been of the belief, I, I wrote an article several, several years ago called Putting the Real in reality-based training, because I and I address some of these issues. Um, I personally think that one of the ideas that should be we our training scenarios should prepare them for what's probable. Meaning, I give uh, I put students through scenarios of things that they're likely to see at least at first, and that will start to prepare them for what's possible. So that was a mantra I lived by: prepare them for what's probable. What's the likely situations they're going to find themselves in all the time? Instead of these, oh shit, hell, uh, you know, ninjas falling from black helicopters and jumping out of every bush and all that. And I drove me crazy when I would have instructors say, well, it could happen. Okay. Yeah, it could. But how about we get them good at the things they're going to do more, most often? Let's start there. And then we can start adding some of those more difficult challenges in context. So uh, that is something that always irked me is these uh, no win. Um, I remember my academy, just some ridiculous, I look back now, I just remember some ridiculous uh, training scenarios, things that could just possibly never possibly happen. Um, and then to your point, Chris, uh, they've got to have an understanding of human performance. We understand that we're trying in a lot of scenarios to cause stress. And there, we have to remember that a lot of them are actually operating in system one during the um you know, during the scenario. And then what happens is FTOs, we do this as well. Sometimes we'll ask the question, like, what the hell were you thinking? And then watch them stumble over it. Well, part of the problem is, is that when you ask that question, they're trying to now from a system two mindset, articulate their system one behavior. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. That's why it's hard to articulate for sometimes. So I just think you have to have an understanding of how the brain actually records information and things like that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the uh, learning objectives is the most is the part to yep. start with, as opposed to yep. designing scenarios that start with this will look cool, this will be fun, this is a, some exotic thing that you know, this exotic scenario we came up with, or uh, safety plans or role players or any of that stuff. It has to be you know, what is the point of this? And right. oftentimes, you know, scenarios and training are because there's a cool factor to it. It's going to be fun. Uh, there's going to be a win. People will feel good. You know, all these kind of side issues. The first issue is what is the learning objective? What are we trying to achieve here? Right. Um, is it smart, you know, specific, measurable, achievable? Was it realistic and time bound? Yep. How will we know when we get there? You know, how will we know when learning occurred? Learning will look like what? You know, best case scenario, the student's going to do X. Well, if the student performs X, we know learning has occurred. Move on. You know, why are we, what are you doing this for? Mm-hmm. Um, is it super specific? Is it realistic? Is it not just some exotic thing? Uh, what are we trying to achieve there? Then kind of work backwards. But, you know, oftentimes we're starting from the front part of the scenario and and moving through it. But these concepts like, you know, we've talked about uh, from the Make It Stick book, another one great book uh, for things like that would be Range uh, by uh, Epstein, David Epstein. 
outstanding book talking about uh, interweaving domains and whatnot. Um, and then again, if you're, especially in law enforcement, designing these types of scenarios, forget about looking inward all the time and, and go to the experts, you know, contact Tony, look at other, uh, you know, aviation, medicine, you know, there's so, it's just such a big world out there. It doesn't have to be constantly inward looking like only police trainers and police, you know, trade publications and police this and police that is the answer. It's just not real. Uh, the, the scenario, you can Google scenario design right now and probably have a million, you know, great articles about how to do it. So info is definitely out there. Good stuff. I got nothing to add. I, the, my favorite part there was the, you got to have good role players, you know, threat discrimination is based on behavior and someone's going to ask you why you did something in real life. And so if you can't have a, uh, a role player replicate that, uh, then you're, you're not really training. So the, the most important thing is, and I, here's another one that I, I always ask people in the class, I'll go, um, okay, we got the, uh, bad guys over there and you're up next how many role players are here and everyone goes and points at the bad guy and i go no you're both role players this is not real this is realistic fake training this is the most realistic fake training we can come up with but it's not real Mm -hmm. you're both role players and and uh you know uh, ken murray's a good friend of mine and uh we go back and forth on 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 training ideas and stuff like this, but his book, his book training at the speed of life is definitely like the book to get it's encyclopedic and it's very influential and and people should look into that. Awesome. There's so many, there's so many topics to to get into now that we're getting into the realities based training. And I know, uh, I know if you guys have to go, uh, we we're getting close to that three hour mark. So um, are there anything, any last points uh, that you want to touch on uh, for the guys that got to take off? Um, anything that's kind of top of mind that you just want to share before, before you go? Uh, for me, um, it goes back to instructors. You've got to, you got to invest in yourself. Um, you just have to, whether it's finding additional, like I said, uh, I'm sitting here and I, I just attended the Chris's four science class, uh, you know, about a month ago. Um, if it's reading or listening to books and things like that. And I, I think that the book thing is one of the best ways to do it. There's so many, there's so much great stuff out there and I'll just play. I, I know I was offline for a couple minutes, but left a bang. Um, I think that's just a, it's mandatory reading um, for every law enforcement out there. And I liken it to this. I, I, I tell um, folks in our class, I said, listen, uh, in the you know, 80s and in the early 90s, we had street survival tactical edge. And then, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, we kind of we had Grossman with on combat and on killing. I honestly believe that the book Left a Bang is that transformational. I think it is that because every, uh, you know, we talk, listen to Tony talking about pre-attack indicators, pre-salt indicators. They're all they're all left a bang. They're, they're all just anomalies from the baseline. Right. Uh, when we go up and talk to somebody and say, hey, sir, how are you doing today? They don't clench your normal law-abiding citizens don't clench your fists. They don't turn their body. They don't stare at your gun. Uh, they don't. That's just not what normal law-abiding citizens do. When anomalies are uh, happening, there's a reason for it. And as the book talks about, they don't happen in a vacuum. There's a reason that there is all this abnormal behavior occurring. So again, I, I don't have. Uh, I, I know Patrick Van Horn. Uh, we were fortunate enough to do a uh, WinX talk uh, at the same time, which was great. But um, so I'm not trying to plug books for them. But for me, it's that big a deal. Um, it, it just like street survival was in its time, and um, and uh, on gro- or on, with Irma uh, Grossman and stuff. So uh, that, just read more. I think can be part of it. Subscribe to things like these podcasts. Um, and here's one thing: I'll, I'll just look at the group that you assembled here tonight. They, Adam, thank you so much for um, allowing me to do that. Um, all four of us actually own our own training companies. And what I think is really important here is that not, you didn't hear any, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to take a shot at Scott. So it'll make me look better. I think the best instructors that you could possibly put together, they're humble and they look for ways to work with other instructors. I've known Tony forever. Um, again, I, I knew about Chris, but got to meet him recently. I think the best instructors help each other out. And, and it goes back to that main thing I said earlier. 
every great instructor knows it's not about them. They are not. It's never about the instructor. It is always about the student. If you stay focused on that, you're going to be have great success as a trainer. Awesome. Chris? Let's try. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't improve much on what John what John said, but but I, I I do want to reinforce what John said, and I think you know the listeners who will listen to this conversation that we've had over the last three hours will respect the amount of time that we spent talking about neurological psychological issues, decision making, performance, human factors issues, and um, the time is now in law enforcement. Uh, we, We've got done such a good job at giving cops great equipment, technology, and they, they've got all that. But when you see an officer who fails to succeed operationally in a use of force event, it's almost never because they didn't have the right equipment. It's because they suffered a psychological collapse for, because of some reason. So for the instructors out there, read about the human factors, look at the research, get the the books that are out there, understand how to get inside cop head and, and help them neurologically and psychologically. One book that I'll recommend is a recent one that just came out is called Skill Acquisition and Training by Johnson and Proctor. This is by um, Rutledge Press. It's, it's not an easy read. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now, you're going to struggle through it because it's really heavy with science but it is like a definitive text to understand human factors, human performance, psychology, and how to actually build training programs for human performance. That's awesome. Bring your dictionary. <laughs> your antecedents. Your antecedents. Right. <laughs> uh, Scott, anything, uh, anything to add before you take off? Well, speaking antecedently, I would just say that uh, <laughs> uh, I would echo – Oh, my colleague said it, you know, just on a personal note, this is, uh, this is awesome, you know, to be included in this group and share something I, I hope was a little meaningful to the students that are, are watching this. I would say absorb, you know, what's going on here. Let us be a little bit of a, an example. Uh, I would agree with what John said. We have, you know, companies and we're in no way competing with each other. We're trying to collaborate and uh, if you open yourself up to those kind of opportunities, you'll find the same. Um, I'm sure you could email any one of us and we'd be happy to, to email you back if we can and, and share with you whatever we know. And uh, lastly, this, uh, especially for the law enforcement officers out there, this is uh, unfortunately a very dangerous job and can be deadly. Don't leave it to anyone else, including your employer, to train you. You know, it's not the be all end all training that they're going to give you. You really have to take control of your own uh career and safety and seek out all the training you can do all the reading you can and uh, protect yourself. Awesome. Tony. I get to go last and everything was set. I'll go last. I'll go last. You're second. Um, no, I just, uh, I, I wanted to add something to John's point about, you know, left a bang. Uh, you know, every victim of violence who I ever interviewed, agreed at some point admitted that that they had a bad feeling before the attack and i refer to that as the body's the body's internal intuitive gps it's that gps that you know like you know you you're going the wrong way make a legal u-turn and and in in the context of that if you're walking up on a car or a house and you go and i got a bad feeling choose safety yeah don't confuse playing it safe with choosing safety choosing safety might be charging the threat Choosing safety might be jumping behind hard cover. So if you remember those two things, that your body has an internal GPS, it's called your intuition. Mm-hmm. And there's no downside to choosing safety. If you get this, this weird feeling about something and then you take extra time and you, you back off and you create a perimeter and you find that it was nothing, guess what? You're safe. Yep. And if it was something about to happen, guess what? You're safe. Yep. So choose safety, trust your intuition. And you guys, totally flattered and honored uh, to be on the call with you all. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, there's there's definitely nobody more uh, more honored than than I am to to have the four of you gentlemen join me on this and uh, and be my guinea pigs, like I said earlier, uh, to this uh, to this show to this live roundtable. Um, just just in the feedback we've gotten beforehand, and I know the stuff that we were getting through the comments throughout and on social media and all that kind of stuff. This is going to be something that we're going to be rolling for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm lucky I get a, I get to see, I know I'm going to see John and Ilita 
uh, at the Alita Conference in March. I don't know if there are any of you are going to make it down there, but uh, I'll be in the States a lot this yeah, uh, year too, to, to be able to check out and, uh, and hang out with you guys. Um, for anybody listening to this, uh, I mean, we're going to be making sure that we didn't do a lot of uh, self-promotion for, for your guys as companies on this. It was, it was more about the education. So on my end, I'm going to make sure that we send every, everybody, direct them to your websites, your web pages, so they know more about you. Um, and get training from uh, some of the top instructors in the world. So thank you guys for, for doing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this has been a complete honor. There was a lot of stuff we didn't get to, uh, but this isn't the end of it. I know uh, for people that listen to the podcast, uh, both John and uh, Chris are going to be coming on as guests. Uh, Scott and Tony have already uh, been on as guests, and uh, Scott's episode's coming out here uh, in a week. So uh, everybody stay tuned for that, for his episode. And, uh, and yeah, this is just the, the start of it. So thank you guys for being here. And I couldn't, uh, couldn't be more honored. Thank you for the opportunity. Good job, man. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's finish her off with this promo. And if you guys want to stick around, we'll, uh, we'll just chat real quick before we take off. All right. That wraps up the instructors round table round one on use of force and defensive tactics. If you'd like to share this with your friends, with your colleagues, please do so. You can just direct them to thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT for more information or check out the YouTube channel. They can get it all there. We are really excited to announce our partnership with Caliber Press and bringing these instructors roundtables to you on the last Thursday of each and every month at 1800 Central. If you get to the website, you can click and set a reminder on your calendar, on your phone or computer to let you know when we're rolling these out live so that you can join us, ask questions. You're going to get unprecedented access, and I'm excited that we can bring that to you. As always, if you're finding this information actionable, if you're finding it useful, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you have a second, go in, leave a rating, leave a review. Really appreciate those. We're going to post those up on the website. Thank you for being part of what we're doing. Thank you for doing what you do and uh, and being part of the show. Make sure to join us next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.